This forum is part of the City Club's Sustainable NEO series, sponsored by Bank of America. We're grateful for their generous support. Hello, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here at the City Club and Proud Member. It's Thursday, October 7th, and you're here for a virtual City Club forum, Journalism and the Environmental Movement, Amplifying Voices Through Local Action. In Cleveland and across the country, decades of deliberately racist policies and planning decisions have caused tremendous environmental harm to Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities. Disproportionate exposure to air and water pollution, climate change, and lead exposure translate to higher rates of asthma, infant mortality, lead poisoning, and other life-threatening comorbidities. Racial justice, environmental justice, and the health of our democracy are linked. However, communities are not powerless to change their circumstances and confront environmental and racial injustices. So how can nonprofit organizations, journalists, and the philanthropic sector come together to support environmental justice reporting projects? And how can we leverage the power of local news of the local news ecosystem to spotlight environmental justice narratives and lift up stories and solutions led by BIPOC leaders, organizations, and residents? Moderating the conversation today is News 5 co-anchor, Delon Dillard, and he will be introducing today's panelists. Delon? Cynthia, thank you so much, and thank you for allowing me to be a uh, moderator for this important conversation with these ladies as well. So um, first and foremost, I want to introduce Samia. He is a facilitator of the Black Environmental League Association. Uh, for nearly 30 years, she has provided consulting services in the private manufacturing and nonprofit sectors. Her work focuses on intersection of equity, democracy, and environment. Simone Lightfoot is the Associate Vice President of Environmental Justice and Climate Justice at the National Wildlife Federation. Uh, there she leads efforts on conservation and wildlife issues that impact frontline communities, and her work connects the National Wildlife Federation's existing work to social justice and environmental justice organizations. Lastly, Lila Mills, she is the associate, she is the associate program director at Neighborhood Connections and is also here representing uh, the Cleveland Documenters. At Neighborhood Connections, Lila has focused on uplifting the stories of residents making positive change in Cleveland and East Cleveland. Lila was born and raised on the south side of the land and spent 10 years as a journalist prior to joining Neighborhood Connections. So I'm so happy and honored to be a part of this uh, discussion with all three of you talented Black women. Thank you for joining us here. Um, and we'll get right into it. As I ask questions, I'll direct the question to a person specifically. But if any of you want to chime in, feel free as well. So um, I'll, I'll direct my first question to Simone. Um, and a simple question, but it's why we are here. Um, Simo, can you answer what exactly is environmental justice? That's a question that I get all the time and I prefer to make it real simple. It's where people put things and allow things to occur that they don't want. That's what environmental justice is. And the justice portion is the fight that you push back in order to change those dynamics. You fight against whether it's utilities, whether it's messaging, whether it's the government itself, that's the pushback where the justice comes in for those places, spaces, and people who are burdened with those things nobody else wants. And um, I know that you, of course, you work with the National Wildlife Federation, so you have a wide scope in regards to projects and things happening 
nationally. So talk about with me, or talk about for me rather, uh, what is happening? What is happening nationally in regard to the environmental movement and environmental justice overall? Well, it's the new. Um, it's the new black. I always say black is the new black. Environmental justice is the new black. It's a place and a space where a whole lot of folk are now being woke around environmental justice, but it doesn't necessarily mean they come with the cultural competencies and the geographic competencies necessary. Also around environmental justice is, thank goodness, more funding is coming uh, in, in that lane, in that space. But what you also have to combat and deal with are what some call fad missions, where folk begin to change their missions in order to chase the dollars. And so again, environmental justice is the new thing and a lot of folk are going towards it and for it without the staff. You know, they don't have the staff that reflect, they don't have the relationships in particularly those urban centers and those rural spaces that really deal with environmental justice on a regular basis. They don't have the networks necessarily. And it isn't just on the outside, it's on the inside too. The previous administration did a tremendous job at gutting out our federal agencies and so the talent the intellectual property that was there, the long years of tenure around permitting and how to move and address environmental justice. Many folk retired and they left. And so we found ourselves helping at the federal level fill staffing gaps at agencies where we were helping find great talent across the country who would be willing to go into public service in our EPAs, our DOJs, our Department of Ag, uh, and that's important. The last thing I'll say is we have a Build Back Better plan that is attempting to move through the reconciliation process right now on the Hill. Uh, we're gravely concerned that EJ will not see the benefits that it had been promised. We were looking at $3.5 million and now they're saying get ready for half of that. And so there's still a mighty push that has to occur even after uh, justice advocates have helped deliver ideally a political infrastructure in Washington that should be able to do better by environmental justice. There's concern that that um, still needs to be helped along. So obviously a lot is happening um, in regard to environmental justice and there's more work that needs to be done. And this question, any of you ladies can answer this. Why, someone who's watching who may say, why should I care about this? Why should people care about this? I can jump in on that. Um, so I'm representing two local projects in which residents have been exploring this summer environmental justice and how it's impacting their communities. And Tila Patterson, who is running um, lead on one of those projects called Healing Spaces, says, uh, I wrote this down, she said to me the other day, everybody should have access to green spaces that are usable and safe. And this is something we all should care about. So the idea is we all have spaces in our communities, we're living in our neighborhoods, we want our children to be able to access green space. We may want to access green space. And that's what makes it kind of a universal issue. Thank you. And um, one thing also for Simone, is there anything locally, I know we're talking nationally, um, any work that you know of locally um, that is happening right now or should be happening on a local level uh, from leaders, policymakers, lawmakers um, to, to, to do the work to impact this? We do locally. We were just in Benton Harbor this past weekend. They are dealing with lead contamination. Uh, you know, 15 parts per billion is what's actionable. Uh, they're dealing with some levels at 889 parts per billion coming out of folks' faucets. And so the National Wildlife Federation Environmental Justice team under the leadership of Dr. Mustafa Ali uh, are using all the resources that we can muster 
with our media relationships, bringing in attention to this, working with the governor, trying to make sure that water is delivered to Benton Harbor while we figure out ways, for example, to create independent testing for young people. They really don't have the data to substantiate what they know is occurring. Uh, and there isn't necessarily the rush from government to help them acquire that data. And so we're looking at things like how can we help, just like with Flint, how can we help get independent lead testing in there, particularly for the babies, so that we can begin to document. Flint is still another uh, uh, case that we're working with. They are still not quite finished with their lead service line replacement. So anything we can do always to help there, we're working with the Flint Water Lab there, which we help create. Um, with the relationships we put together and they are testing their own water with young people there in Flint. The young people can extract the water from your home, test it at the lab and tell you um, very directly what is going on with your water and it creates a sense of added trust. Uh, last thing I'll say, we're in Benton, uh, we're in, uh, excuse me, Jackson, Mississippi, helping uh, Mayor Lumumba deal with flooding issues that he's challenged with, he and State Representative Stamps. And we're also in Birmingham, Alabama, helping um, Mayor Woodfin and his work and efforts around sewer systems and uh, sewer bills. And last Mount Vernon, New York is another we were called into in the last couple of weeks dealing with their sewer system uh, and the struggles that they are facing with constant fines from EPA as they try to clean up uh, their sewer lines. And so those are spaces that we are and those are spaces where environmental justice is occurring and, um, and we're there trying to help inform and move uh, the needle there. So these are obviously topics that are affecting large cities. I'm from Michigan, so I'm fully aware of the, the incident in Flint and I heard about the issue in Benton Harbor. So this is this is happening really across the country in several different sectors of several different cities. Yep. Yes, it is and it will continue to. We had a, a study come out of Michigan State a few years back saying that in, within five years, 35% of the country won't be able to afford their water. And I think that was probably three years ago or so. And so we see the astronomical increases in water affordability. We have to do things different. The state revolving fund can't be the answer to everything. We have to put new systems and structures in place. And I could go on and on, but I will wait till we get to those uh, spaces where we can add some, some more ideas. And I wanna ask this question to uh, Samia, because I know that of course you work with black environmental leaders. When we see um, issues of environmental justice happening, we see this happening in largely spaces that are affecting uh, black and brown people. There's obviously an issue behind that. Could you kind of unpack that for me? Or, or why is that that we're seeing this more in neighborhoods and in cities that are, I mean, for example, Ben Harbor is largely black. Flint is largely black. Why is that a thing? Yeah, well, Delon, thank you so much for, for that opportunity. and and. and I just want to say hello to everyone. And if if I might have just a moment uh, before I answer the question to just ask everyone who's with us, um, if you could, if you would uh, join me silently for a moment of reflection and respect uh, in memory of Jacqueline Gillen. Uh, words cannot express the tremendous contribution that Jacqueline made within the environmental justice movement. And I would feel remiss to speak to that without pausing for a moment to honor her legacy and her memory. So today, you know, I just wanna honor her commitment to leadership, to equity and to uplifting community voice, which is what we're here today to, to discuss. Um,
Thank you for that moment. Um, and so, you know, to get to your question, historically, um, the United States has made investments into various communities. And what we see is a consistent disinvestment within communities, black and brown communities. Um, however, you know, as we think about environmental justice, and we think about today's conversation about local action, um, that's not the end of the story, thank goodness. You know, even though those disinvestments have occurred, even though um, redlining and the ill effects of those things have occurred, the people who live in those communities still can exercise and choose to exercise their agency to be able to say, that's not right. That shouldn't happen in my community. And not only should that not happen, but these are the things that I can do to lift my voice and my voice should be heard. And so I'm thinking about um, the, the newest project that we're working on, the Greater Cleveland Local Journalism Collaboratives, where we're really working collaboratively to change that narrative, you know, add a little bit more to our media diet that it's not just about the disinvestment, but it's also about the resiliency, the agency and the strength of the people who live in these communities to say no more. It, it's time for that investment to be um, spread more equally and equitably. And I know you just referenced um, using your agency. And of course, I met you on a story where we were inter interviewing you about Black environmental leaders and the work they're doing sp specifically with the Garden of Eleven Angels. Yes. I know you all are doing work across Ohio. I know you told me you were in Cincy. I uh, came here to Cleveland bouncing around. How can we amplify this topic through through collaborations, just like the collaboration that we talked about, you know, a couple of months ago? Yeah, I think, you know, projects like the, the local journalism collaboratives are one of those ways where it's the local voice. Um, so often we can dehumanize an issue after so many conversations of disproportionate impact and, and those communities that are adversely affected, right? We lose something in that. We lose the humanity. But when the voices in front of the camera or on the blog or writing the op-eds are the voices of the people who are living with those various disproportionate impacts, now it becomes a human conversation. It becomes a real story because it's real people who are suffering and paying the cost for the profits that have been made by other people. Absolutely. So um, I know you talked about a couple of things. Anything that Black environmental leaders is doing right now, right collaborations now, that they are working on. I want to make sure we're plugging all the organizations and work that everyone is doing. Talk to me about some of the collaborations that people should have, um, should keep in their mind or should have their eyes on, especially in the next several months and even embarking on this new year. Sure. Well, there's a couple that come to mind. One is the uh, Black Landscapes Matter series that we've been doing. Uh, we've been in multiple cities across the state and we'll continue that throughout 2022. And it's really highlighting and lifting up those community stories and community voices um, across the state. Like, for example, in uh, Cincinnati, there was a gun range that was, uh, it was they, as, as the Lincoln Heights people tell the story, they say that this was the first city that was founded by African-Americans on this side of the Mason-Dixon line about 75 years ago. So they incorporated, they used their agency, they incorporated, and then a year later, within a, just outside the corporation line, 
a gun range was built. And so for the last 74 years, the descendants of those folks who founded Lincoln Heights have lived with constant gunfire from morning to night. And they've been advocating. And just recently, uh, we have good news after assisting them in amplifying that story across the state and across the country that there is discussion, real discussion, about finally moving that gun range. So we're talking about the soil being contaminated with lead. We're talking about the air. We're talking about the water. And we're also talking about how that decision to put that gun range just outside the corporation line of that particular community, the sound, I don't know about you all, but if I hear gunshot, I immediately you know, react. Can you imagine all day long, every day, your children outside playing and all they hear is gunfire? Those types of stories are happening all across this state and across the country. And so one of the projects that we're working on is amplifying those voices so that we don't forget, but at the same time, we celebrate the agency, we celebrate the advocacy, and we stay true to the voice of the people who are truly impacted by those decisions. And I think that is a good segue into Miss Lila Mills. And as we talk about amplifying and voices, um, of course, you have worked in journalism. You have a journalism background. Talk to me about um, how important it is for the community to have a voice in all of this, because at the end of the day, it's about the community. This is what this topic is really affecting. Yes, and I'm really here today representing two projects funded um, with support from Black environmental leaders, led by residents, exploring and looking into environmental justice, and really working towards making change in their own communities. So journalism, um, I did spend 10 years as a journalist, but I love this quote from Daryl Holliday out of Chicago, and Daryl always says, journalism is fundamentally not a profession. It is an act of civic, civic action. Anyone can, can become a journalist. Anyone can do that type of exploration. And the work and the projects that we're doing with support from Black environmental leaders are really led by residents who are exploring um, through a journalistic lens how environmental um, injustice has impacted their community. So one of them is Julian Kahn looking at how people have used their agency. Samia keeps talking about agency. Um, and I really want to highlight that, that piece that this kind of work of people taking action in their communities, it's not new. It's been happening for a long time here in Cleveland. And with Neighborhood Connections, we do small grants, mostly focused in Cleveland and East Cleveland. And people are doing environmental justice work um, for the almost 20 years that we've been doing this work. So that's not new. And what's new for us has been this journalism ex exploration, especially with these projects this summer, that give people the, uh, the opportunity to amplify what's happening with their neighbors and this resident-led work. Um, and so Julian is really looking at how people have transformed vacant space in Buckeye. And Tila and um, 13 other Cleveland documenters have been across the city interviewing people in their communities about how they've taken action. Um, one documenter, Marvetta Rutherford, interviewed um, Fred Hardman, who has taken vacant land in the Lee Miles neighborhood and really put in his own blood, sweat and tears and even sometimes his own dollars to make that green space something that is usable and accessible for all members of this community. And, and talking about journalism as well, me being a journalist, 
what can we as television journalists, even radio journalists, people who uh, come to work, and I may have a minute and 30 seconds for a story. What can we do? What are things that we, and holding myself accountable, we need to be doing and, and monitoring and, and covering um, to uplift these stories and amplify these issues? Because sometimes I don't know about things right. until someone emails me. Right, absolutely. And you do, you have a minute 30. Um, I always think it's that slight shift in perspective. And it is saying people, people don't need to be empowered. People have their own power. They often just need a little fuel, whether that's a financial investment or belief in the idea, or through a journalistic, through a story, the sense that, you know, look at people using their power to make change in their community, moving towards collective action, raising awareness about an issue in their community. Um, and and there's power in that. There's power in those stories. There's power in that perspective that says that people people have the power to make change that they want to see. Yeah, if I if I could, uh, Lila, I agree wholeheartedly. I think also that it's um, as a journalist, Delon, if if the journalism community could consider expanding the ecosystem of the environmental justice conversation, not um, uh, yeah, because sometimes people they get courage to um, when they can see something, when they can hear something. And there may be somebody within a community who is struggling with an issue. And because it's in their community and it's their issue, they feel like they're all alone. They feel like it's just them against the world. And then turning that television on and seeing you talking about things like we're talking about today, talking about showing, highlighting people who are doing good trouble, <laughs> who are uh, highlighting, you know, even the fact that, you know, they have to be resilient, but, you know, wouldn't it be nice if they didn't have to be resilient because these decisions weren't being made in their community, right? Highlighting those things can sometimes give people the courage to just take that next step, to continue to move forward. And, you know, series like this one um, and doing more of it and broadening that appetite within the, um, journalism ecosystem, um, I think could go a very long way. I think also too, Delon, your friends, your network, it's important that reporters beef up their network and friends, particularly those friends in the EJ space who know how to turn on the dime. We understand deadlines. We understand not having the time to actually really prepare. Um, but having that network of individuals that you can trust with data science, stats, and facts, and so that when you call or they call and tell you, you literally can trust you can go on the air without you having to worry about doing your own research yourself. Um, and it takes a minute to figure out who those players are. Some will give you the emotional side of an issue, and that's important too. Uh, and then there is the agency and the ability to, to sell and articulate that issue. And then that's where folk like us come in, where we bring that science, that, those, that data, the facts that um, is acceptable. And we can talk more. I look forward to talking more about what the press as a whole um, could do. Absolutely, thank you. And um, I know I've heard you, Samia, references. Anyone can really answer this question. How can we, even people watching, viewers watching, how can they use their agency to amplify this topic and to, to make sure more eyes are on issues happening in their own communities relating to environmental justice? Yeah, I, I real briefly, I'd say, you know, remembering that they, we are they, 
right? Um, sometimes we say, well, they should do something about it. Somebody should do something. Somebody should say something about that. If we remember that we are they, and then we can, um, at that moment, we'll move differently um, than perhaps being a bystander. I think the saying goes, some people make things happen, some people watch things happen, and other people wonder what happened. Um, stepping from that watching what happened and moving into that, because everybody can do something. You know, whether it's civic engagement, whether it's talking to a neighbor, a colleague, a friend, um, sending an email to a journalist, everybody can do something. Um, but we have to remember that we are they, and, and it's not up to somebody else to do it for us. Very true. I, I would add on to that, that idea that any action you're gonna take is gonna start with conversation. So start talking to your neighbors, start identifying what are those issues that you're interested in taking action on? And then you move into that we space. Out of Detroit, uh, Reverend Wendell Anthony always says, there's enough fires for everybody to pick up a bucket. So yes, absolutely. I was in uh, the military. And one thing I learned in the Air Force, while everyone did not lead the mission, everybody on that military base, from the chow hall cook to the, the military police were mission essential. And the folk in the community have to view themselves as mission essential. It's also important that we look uh, deeper at how we define media because now TikTok yes. <laughs> and YouTube and social media influencers are media yes. for a whole new generation. And so um, I have a young staff that I have, uh, along with Dr. Ali, have built and they are teaching us all the time things like work-life balance, which I've never heard of before. Um, <laughs> people who do authentic civic engagement work for the community know that community meetings start at six in the evening. So you're going to be on and, and popping and operating um, all types of hours. And so how do we make sure that we create an atmosphere at the workplace to allow for that type of engagement? How do we make sure we're okay carving out of our budget some money called social media influencer dollars? How do we create social media influencers? Uh, for instance, oftentimes people like those folk who have 100,000 followers. I like those young people who may have 200 followers, but with our big brand behind them and me sending them a check every month, they can grow their followers, followers, grow themselves, do it with our data, our science, our stats, our facts, our brand, and they too begin to come into this space. I think it's also important to know that we're dealing with competing interests. And we have to, to know that in the EJ space, we're dealing with hurricanes and floods and oil spills, along with sewer systems and water lines and making sure that pipelines and public health are even addressed. And so um, the community groups have to make sure that we make relations with those news folk, all types of news folk, uh, and, and it's vice versa. And the last thing I'll say, it's important that funders, like you all have been blessed to have, fund this kind of work. Newsrooms have been cut as bad as government uh, has been cut in many instances. And so we don't have those investigative reporters like we used to have when I was a kid who could spend a good week or a month on a story before they, they rolled it out. And so media personalities that we know and have, we need to see ourselves as their informants to, uh, to provide them what they need to be saying and, and doing. And then lastly, give them the cover when their news editors <laughs> and other folk higher up want to give them help about doing the right thing on behalf of the community. So our activism has to be stepped up. And our, I was sharing with Samia, it's so important that we don't um, out-resilience ourselves. In the Black community, right. what we tend to do is we just recover. We just recover. 
in Benton Harbor when I was there this this past weekend, they just they were using bottled water. I said, that's cool to use the bottled water, get the water, but then go to the city council and raise hell. Don't just do the resilience part without the demand part. How dare you have to live like this? So that advocacy piece is uh, important and helping young people do it in a uh, constructive way um, and a little bit of their way. You know, what I call constructive, maybe a little conservative for old school. I love some of the results these babies are getting by just taking it to the streets and taking it to the systems. And so a balance of that, along with a little bit of old school and seasoning uh, would, would be helpful as well. Yeah, that intergenerational combination is amazing. Um, and it's so needed and so valuable. You know, Simone, I love how you you brought that home to say that it's it's all the generations and it's at all levels because the decisions that were made that have us in this environmental justice conversation in the first place, and we've all seen the stats and the history and the, all of that, um, it requires um, a multi-level, multi-disciplined, and intergenerational approach all happening simultaneously. Last question. Um, and I'll pose this to all of you. I'm, obviously, I'm on a panel with three Black women. How important is it to have people, Black women, Black people in these spaces, in these positions, because th this issue is affecting us? So how important is it for us to be on the front lines, to be working in these roles and to be doing things like this to impact and to affect us at the end of the day? Well, we've been on the front line. That's our history. <laughs> I don't know if we know. We don't know any other line, especially as black women. Black women are water warriors from our time in Africa to here. Today, we know the value of our water, our air, our soil, our housing stock, all those things and how they impact our family. So it's absolutely important. It's also more important now because now that we have these new woke audiences who don't have these competencies, they're throwing a lot around a lot of words now. You hear diversity, equity, inclusion, front line, fence line. And I'm always asking, define it. Because my concern is that we're on the Hill daily and that same language is finding its way in policy. It's finding its way in regulations and rules and it still has not been defined. So black and brown people have to define their frontline communities there in Cuyahoga County. So that when that money starts flowing into these states, folk don't start redefining their communities uh, and, and changing like we saw with the black farmers. You'd be amazed at how many people either became a minority farmer or even a black farmer <laughs> after there was money set aside for black farmers and they made it retroactive. I mean, those are the kind of games that get played. So it's so important that we define these definitions that are floating because if we don't, we leave those definitions to others, lack of understanding. And then it's harder for us to make um, our case in, in that space. So I'll, I'll stop there. Can I add, add on to that quickly? I was talking to Julian Kahn, who's doing the work in Buckeye, and I said, well, what's the one thing you're seeing? And he said, out of everyone we're talking to, the one issue is funding. They are doing good work, but they are doing it often out of their own pockets. And so speaking to what Simone said about defining it, that also gets you connected to the funding that you're going to need to sustain it. Yeah. And so people are doing this work. They've been doing it for generations, doing it for decades, but, but let's get the funding behind it to support their work. Yeah. And if I could just say really quickly, I know we need to move into questions, is that that element of the conversation was so critical. Uh, the Energy Jobs and Justice Act was just launched by Representative Weinstein and uh, Representative House. And it's speaking to environmental justice as the center of 
energy policy for the state of Ohio. And within that, it had to be very detailed about what does what does Black, Indigenous, and people of color really mean um, for that very purpose? Because far too often what we've seen is uh, the transformation in identity when those types of opportunities come forward. Such good information coming in. So today at the City Club, we are listening to a virtual forum talking about nonprofit organizations, journalists, and the philanthropic sector, um, and how it can come together to support environmental justice reporting projects here. Actually, right now, we're going to turn to your questions. And of course, if you're watching and you have any questions for our panelists, text them to area code 330-451-5794. Again, right there at the bottom of your screen, 330. 451-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club, um, and we will try to work them in here. I'll get into the first question. Um, and with this question, I'll let anybody just jump in. Um, what initiatives are out there to encourage and support careers of more um, BPOC journalists from impacted communities? Well, I feel like I'd be, oh, go ahead, Simone. Uh, I feel like I'd be remiss to not mention Cleveland Documenters right here, right now. Uh, Cleveland Documenters is available to any greater Clevelander to be trained and paid to document public meetings and, and get um, in there in the room and start telling it like it is at $16 an hour. Um, so definitely check us out at documenters.org. That is outstanding. I heard about that. And I had wanted something similar when I was a staffer in the legislator, legislature here in Michigan, wanting uh, more young people to come up, particularly young men, especially young black men, to come up with their shirt and ties on to the state capitol uh, and sit in on those committees and then go back into the city and report out. I, I saw a lot of young white males, 21 years old, 22 years old, running the Michigan House of Representatives, running it and making a difference in their boss's ear about what Detroit should get and shouldn't get, what Flint should get, 21 years old now. And so I'm so happy to see that you all are doing that at the local level, funding initiatives like that, funding um, media initiatives, funding students to go out and find hotspots and videotape about the hotspots, and then come back to folk who know the science and the data and connect that and put that, that out there because of the desert or dearth of, of information. We have to create it ourselves. Um, and we need all of us doing it. We need the young people who are bold and daring. And then we need the more conservative folk like me who can take the information and refine it and make it palatable to be heard in certain spaces. And then other folk who can take it and make it palatable for a TikTok video. I mean, we need all hands on deck as it relates to gathering information and, and messaging um, that information. As far as what's available, we need more of that. We at the National Wildlife Federation just held an HBCU roundtable for green careers where we brought all black folk to come together on that call with the different HBCU students and tried to convey to them that green and, and EJ doesn't mean science. You don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to be a biologist. You could be a, a person who raps but you do great music on our natural resources. We have a young man, Warren Dixon, out of Watts, California. Warren is amazing. So if you're a rapper and that's your passion, do that on behalf of natural resources. If you're an accountant, our organizations need those, an attorney. You can be whoever you want to be and, and stay within your lane of passion and still use it to protect what it is that, um, that we need at our, our natural resource level. 
Yeah, I just add really quickly that within Black Environmental Leaders Association, our connections through um, several pipeline uh, initiatives that are geared to working with our, our partners, Global Shapers, which looks at high school through uh, college, then also working with college students uh, and encouraging even the little ones that they can tell their story too. Um, our membership includes the family membership, which is the little ones that it's like everybody has a story because everybody has a perspective. And from that perspective, what I'm seeing is our youngers, they get this environmental issue even better than we do it sometimes and are not afraid to talk about it on all those social media platforms. We just did a live legislative lobby on air uh, a couple weeks ago in Jackson, Mississippi on WNPR, 100,000 watt radio station owned by African-Americans covering five states, the only one in the country. Uh, it's owned by the Medgar Evers family, the Evers family. And we partnered with them and have done amazing work messaging around flooding infrastructure, public health, bringing on experts, but we had the young people come on. And for the first time, one of the things we found is it's really a, a lack of information with young people's perspective on water. You can go into Flint and find five-year-olds and you point to a water fountain and say, get some water. No, 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 they're traumatized. There's a thing called water trauma. If you've been told all your life for the last five years, don't touch that water, don't touch that water, that does something to you. And so it's so important that we do all that we can to get perspective from young people as it relates to water recovery, uh, resilience in New Orleans, the Ninth Ward. We talked to the young people about what it meant to, to, to have to deal with flooding and have a grandmother that you couldn't get out of the house and to hear the babies talk about what they did, uh, what that did to them. And the last thing I'll say is it's so important that we find the funding to have early on projects so that yes. young people view outdoors as just a natural extension of what it is they do. One thing we find on college campuses, particularly in college campuses of color or programs of color, when we just say National Wildlife Federation, come and talk to us about a career, it's like, get out of here. That doesn't, but we have to put photos of black people on there to say, come and talk to the National Wildlife Federation. So we have to introduce this concept in some spaces and in others, if we start early enough, we can bake it in. So second question here, um, with local newspapers on the decline, this country is now seeing an increased number of news deserts, especially in rural communities. So how can journalism and the philanthropic sector come together to make sure everyone has access to news and news that covers environmental issues impacting them? Support broadband. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, you have to expand the broadband to all of those communities. Um, the, the rural as well as the urban, and then provide that uh, accurate, <laughs> yeah. sorry, I had to say that, uh, data uh, to the communities and the, and, and the outlets for people to bring their voices as well, because this is still a humanity issue. It's, it's all the colors of humanity, right? It's um, clean air, clean water, clean soil. That's something that everyone deserves to have as a part of their lived experience. And if that is not the case, then it needs to be addressed. It needs to be supported. And um, those stories need to be talked about as, as far as how we turn that around. I think we need to expand the definition of journalism and who can do journalism um, and then provide some funding so that people in their own communities can begin to tell those stories. Right. That yeah, that's one of the things that I really love about this local journalism collaborative because it's really stepping into uncharted territory and it's 
really lifting up the stories of the local journalists and expanding that definition, not taking away from the, the professional journalists at all, but enhancing and widening that ecosystem to say that there are valuable stories that can come from community. And putting partnerships together, when we put farmers from Northern Michigan with the mom from Detroit saying, I need broadband. Mom needed for son to be able to access school. Farmer needed it to be able to sell his cherries on the side of the road and swipe your credit card with his phone uh, as you're driving by. Those are unlikely alliances. When people watch a farmer and a black mom come both advocating for the very same thing, uh, those are, are very powerful visuals to, uh, to put together. So important, yeah. and I, I can even say, even from my standpoint, sometimes we miss stories because we we cover such a wide range of land, especially here in Cleveland. There's sometimes even in the rural community, we may miss something because we're not realized it's happening, or we're so focused on Cleveland, we're so focused on Akron, that the communities, the the, the surrounding rural communities, we may miss good stories there just because we don't know what's happening, or because we're just not there sometimes. So I can even admit that on our end. Um, It'd be nice to uh, have funding that supplemented what you yeah. all need, though. There needs to really be a body that provides media, a trusted body created that is a repository of that kind of info. Where we're always pulling your chain, pulling. You should never go without. You should have so much you can't get to it, not not know about it. That and we, yeah. we could do a better job of helping make that happen. I I agree. We could do a better job of that, and we will do a better job of doing that. <laughs> awesome. Um, another question here is, it is awesome to see this panel of three amazing Black women. Um, my question is, many people in our communities have been fighting for, envir for environmental justice for generations, and we still have not felt heard. Is there an example of how someone could cut through all of the noise and be heard, or even advice to end this? Funders, 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 funders. Um, the quickest way I find to get heard is to have funders mandating what needs yeah. to occur. Period. Period. I used to say I've been to the organization 13 years and before the National Wildlife Federation, I was at the, the NAACP for 20 years. And so I went from the blackest organization to the whitest organization. And the one thing I would ask when I got there, I said, well, do you all meet with your NAACP leaders? And the response at NWF was, well, no, we don't have a grant for that. And I was fascinated by that, that you get the privilege to just work on what you're funded for. That was foreign to me coming from the NAACP. We were always underfunded and, and always over-delivered. And so the, the mindset and the way people think about things, um, thinking just to reach out to people because they are, are human <laughs> and they are part of this experience and being more uh, broad-minded in that approach is, is, is absolutely essential. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly that it is about Jackie used to say, Jackie used to say to us all the time, you know, it's the, it's our common interest in something around the environment that brings us into the room, but it's our common humanity that keeps us working together. And what we find is um, as we continue working together, people start finding we have a, a lot more, um, almost to the point of, uh, they get surprised sometimes, you know, we have a lot more in common than we don't. Um, and that is within all of our communities, it's within all the shades of humanity, that we have many more things in common than we do not. But unfortunately, we've been uh, socialized to believe that there's supposed to be differences. And those differences cause us to put up uh, barriers that keep us from finding out the truth 
of who we really are as a collective people. Lila, once, is there anything you wanted to add? Or, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, just once funders began to mandate after Mr. Floyd's death. Yes. I saw language change coming out of funders. It blew my mind. It was overnight. And it was now funding has to go to BIPOC. I said, well, what the heck is that? Y'all always giving us a new name. What is that? And so BIPOC was created. Okay, fine. Well, now the money is flowing that way. So organizations like ours who are over 90% white were getting calls saying, hey, we love you. We've been funding you, but you're so white. We can't do that. Our board <laughs> is telling us we got to go with BIPOC. And so now we're watching funding move away from traditional organizations and move to the smaller mom and pop shops. But the thing that the mom and pop shops need now is that extra capacity, that extra administrative help, that ability to work the grant language to move things through. So it's putting us in a new position to be a, a passenger in the car instead of the driver of the car all the time. And I'm super excited about what that does. If funders demand whatever yes. they want to, and put it in that grant language, you will watch every single organization that get funding change overnight. Period. Yes. Case I, have to, I have to give it up for that. It happens every single time. A wise uh, man told me early in my career, you follow the money, you know how it works. I would say to that same idea, how can somebody cut through the noise and be heard? One is people are continuing to do the work and I think we need more connection in the field so that people recognize, you know what, this thing that I'm faced with um, is the same thing that somebody a few blocks away or across town is faced with. And as those connections happen, um, then you realize, oh, we can take actually collective action on this issue because this is a larger issue impacting all of us. And I think the reporting on these two projects that um, we've been part of this summer is elevating that idea. Absolutely. Because everybody is focused on the same thing. Sometimes it's getting water to your space um, sometimes it's dealing with a bunch of small grants that have reporting requirements that are starting to kind of squash you because you're spending all of your time trying to meet reporting requirements instead of doing the work you wanted to get funded to do in the first place. So yes, funding and connection. All about the money at the end of the day. So another question here, this question is actually from Twitter. Uh, what are some of the topics or issues that we should discuss at the neighborhood or community level meetings um, to elevate environmental justice? You know, we started with the Healing Spaces project that uh, is one of the projects we're working on this year because um, of some, one of the people in the documenters community, Tila Patterson was really passionate about it. And Tila was really passionate about this idea that what our communities look like impacts how we feel. And that's where the exploration started. And it led to conversations about environmental justice, conversations with a medical anthropologist, all these different things. But, the, but it started with the idea of, I want to look out my window and see a place that, that looks beautiful. So I want to be able to transform that vacant lot into a green space that's usable for my, for my entire community. And I, I think that's where it starts. And that's something that when people bring a small group together, we see all the time with our grants at Neighborhood Connections folks can make change in just a small group of two or three people. Yeah, I, I think also that it it is helpful to remember that we all live in a neighborhood somewhere. Um, even those who, of us who work in the environmental justice space or in the environmental space. Um, and it, there's also conversations within organizations around, are we an environmental organization? Um, to to um, Simone's point earlier, you know, that there are some organizations right now in the midst of 
elevating the environmental justice conversation are beginning to ask themselves internally, are we an environmental organization or are we an environmental justice organization? And that has a very different feel to it, depending on the organization, you know, because um, if we're if we're looking at just the, the 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 endangered species, not that we shouldn't look at that. That is a part of it. But then we're also looking at the real life people who are our neighbors, who are also dealing with extinction issues. Um, and those things should be taken into account as well. And sometimes you just have to couch it around the animals. Some people love animals more than they love people, period. And so when we talk about Flint water crisis, we could talk about it all day. But when we start talking about dogs dying from drinking the water, then you had a different group of people were interested in dogs come in and then right. they can bring some of their friends. And so uh, be willing to be flexible on how you need to message to get the, the alarm sounded. The other thing I would say is double down on maintaining your control. Your control, your vision, black and brown folks' vision. What is going on now is black and brown people are needed. They're required because, again, the grant funding requires them. And so they have a different, quote, agency right now. Before, they could be an afterthought. They could be something you called one black person in, and therefore you claim you got everybody. It's a different day now, and this is the time to, to seize that. If you have an idea like Lila had with the young people that you know will work, those babies will get out there and report. You can't let people come in and molest that idea. That, and that's what will happen. You will take that idea, requesting funding, and they will add, well, I think you should also add this. I don't. I don't. And we are at a place now where we can say, nope, not doing that one. Now, you can do that, but we're not doing that. Um, the creative control, the what young people call culture, vulture, all those things, black and brown people have to say no to people when they are talking about adding some, some stuff to their Kool-Aid that folk won't drink. They, they know their community and they need to be okay with that. White people have to be okay with black people being in charge. That's new for them sometimes. And that's hard, especially if you're a black woman who can twitch your face like I do and you, you talk like this. And, and I call it passionate. They say, oh my, you come across so combative. Well, see, now whose narrative gets to stand? And so it's really important that everybody be more authentic that's right. So true. You don't just throw words around. And we as black and brown people have to hold folk accountable when they start throwing words around. Tell them to define it. Tell them to unpack it. Because until they do that, it's just words to get dollars and not deliver the resources and the outcomes. Yep. That's the we that's they. A person, a person treats you the way you train them to treat you. And that's all of us. You know, I, I think about the indigenous communities who or the Latinx communities or the uh, Asian American uh, Pacific Islander communities, right? That as we're having these conversations and the shift, I think it's important for us to be mindful that we don't just shift from white privilege to black privilege, right? That it is, let us make this shift to human privilege, that we are doing our work collectively. We are reporting on our work collectively. We are hearing the voices collectively of all the communities. Some people say, well, that can't be possible. You know, it's just not enough. Well, it's enough air for each one of us to take a breath because we all just took one. So if there's enough air for each one of us to take a breath because we just took one, then there's enough air for us to do the things that we're talking about. And quite frankly, doing, making good choices around environmental justice, making efficient choices around um, uh, uh, renewable energy investments, these things are profitable. 
some of them in some ways, I don't, we don't have enough time to talk about this electric vehicle that I have, but I'm telling you all something. <laughs> These things can be profitable. Um, and we have to talk about it that way in terms of business. Oftentimes they talk to black people about jobs that don't come to pass. Stadium get built, no jobs. And they said it was going to be jobs when they said they were going to build a stadium. And so this perpetual pimping of jobs that don't manifest uh, is, is a problem for me. And I make sure that our team focuses on business opportunities for black and brown people, small business opportunities in solar, in EVs, jobs too. But first, economic infusions, capital, and business opportunities, along with jobs and others. The last thing I would say, too, is make sure that you're keeping your networks close. That is your intellectual capital right now. It does not behoove necessarily black and brown people to be so freely giving of all their resources, all their networks, all the folks they know, because others have not made the time to invest in those relationships. Those relationships you've amassed over 20, 30 years, that's money. That is money. And you have to make sure people respect it. And not only that, not infringe upon it. I can't, I wouldn't tell my friend to come to a space I don't think is safe because then they're going to call me and say, why you send me over there the way they treated me? So you have to make sure that the people you're working with have the cultural competencies to even receive the friends of yours they say they want to meet. Um, and so I tell young people, don't be so quick to give up everybody you know. Don't be so quick to give up the how you do. Just do what you do. I'll bring chocolate chip cookies. I ain't going to give you the recipe, but I'll bring some good chocolate chip cookies. That recipe is my intellectual property. And that's important for us to remember as black and brown people now right, who man. everybody is now sucking and pulling on uh, to do this work. I love this dialogue. Please continue to ask your questions. Oh, I know we have a couple of more minutes. Another question we have here. How can we combat the deluge of misinformation spreading online and through social media about climate change, especially when there is such a strong narrative about journalists being part of fake news? And this is triggering for me. So all I will say <laughs> is, let me add my two cents into this. Stop believing everything you see on social media because right. quite often people do not know what they're talking about. Just right. because a person has a platform on social media, they may not even know what they're talking about. So just. Get your information from trusted sources. I'll, I'll leave the rest to y'all, but I'm telling you, this triggers me just, in, especially in the midst of this pandemic and just the job that I work. <laughs> but I'll leave the rest of, I'll leave it to y'all to answer the rest. I'll jump in on that one because I would say that goes back to expanding the definition of what is journalism and giving people the support and the resources they need because every community has a trusted connector. There is somebody in every neighborhood that you go to because they have all the good information. How do I do this? How do I connect to this? And they'll know. Um, every community has folks who are going to a ton of meetings and knowledgeable about what's impacting the community. So if those folks can have support and resources to do what they do anyway and do it kind of um, instead of on as, as a side thing or something they do on the side to do it as what they do, then I think we'll get more of that trusted information out to, to folks who um, right now might, might be turning to social media and somebody who who is online trusted and not real life trusted. I think it's also important to um, for us older heads, I'll go back to that, to honor the truth of what's going on right now. Literally, I'm, I'm surprised to know that my daughter, for example, when she is on her phone, I say, what are you doing? I'm looking at a movie. I'm like a movie. She will have paused that movie 10 times. I don't think of looking at a movie that way. I sit through a movie. And so when they're buried into a certain medium, we have to be okay shifting quicker than we do with where we put our communications dollars, what we view as communications, how we embrace 
and invite in alternative media sources. That's one. I think the other thing is, as you said, uh, creating those sources in turn. That's another thing that can be funded. When we start talking about community projects that can be funded, block captains and precinct delegates and those, well, precinct delegates is more political, but, but block captains for a volunteer setting, um, if there's ways to stipend people to do certain kind of eco watching, we got dumping issues, we have water delivery that we need to make happen in a flood area, that flood, uh, that captain of that area comes and gets the water for those four blocks um, and accounts for that. That helps us not have a parking lot at City Hall full of water and not distributed out into the community. And so empowering at the local level, young people, seniors, and even college students on campuses. We have at our program, um, we had interns this year who were so dynamic. I looked at our budget to carve out how I can keep them on retainer, if you will, little couple hundred bucks a month, not a big stipend, send it to them and you let me know what's happening on Grambling and Southern and Tougaloo College and Jackson State University. And so when I call you and say, Build Back Better is happening and we need you tweeting out about Build Back Better, well now she and several of her friends from the campus are doing that. She's getting the civic club from the campus to do that. And so we, we have to find ways to stipend and help empower and pay folk to help us uh, become that trusted news source. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for this this great dialogue. I have certainly enjoyed it. And I'm taking some of this with me as I go into work at 3.30. <laughs> so thank you um, so much. And all of you who are watching, who are asking your questions, as well, I hope that we answered everything that you had um, in this hour that we've been speaking as well. I want to bring back Cynthia um, in here now. Hello. Thank you so much, Delon, Simone, Lila, Samia. That was an incredible conversation. Um, I was very eagerly tweeting a couple of the, the comments that you had made specifically about broadband access. Uh, really excited and grateful to have everyone here and taking their time out of their day to join us. Uh, and thank you for joining us for today's virtual forum, Journalism and the Environmental Movement, Amplifying Voices Through Local Action, featuring Samia Bray. She's the co-facilitator of the Black Environmental Leaders Association. Simone Lightfoot, Associate Vice President of Environmental Justi Justice and Climate Justice at the National Wildlife Federation. And we have Lila Mills, Associate Pro Program Director at Neighborhood Connections and a member of the Cleveland Documenters team. Today's forum was moderated by Delon Dillard, co-anchor of News 5. This forum is part of our Sustainable Northeast Ohio series sponsored by Bank of America. We're grateful for their support. Our community partners are the Black Environmental Leaders and the Northeast Ohio Solutions Journalism Collaborative. Thank you so much. All of City Club's virtual forums are presented for free thanks to generous support from Bank of America, PNC, and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District. You can join them too in supporting City Club's mission by making a contribution online, becoming a member, or texting the word DONATE to 216-616-CLUB. That's 216-616-2582. And follow a few easy steps to make your donation. Be sure to join us tomorrow in person at the City Club for our Friday Forum in partnership with the Deaconess Foundation. It's called Preparing for the Jobs of Tomorrow, featuring Tamisha Bridges-Mansfield, Vice President for Workforce Innovation and Jobs at Jobs for the Future. Tickets are still available for this forum. 
On Monday, October 11th, the City Club of Cleveland, in partnership with IdeaStream Public Media, will host the general election debate with the Cleveland mayoral, mayoral candidates, Justin Bibb and Kevin Kelly. This 90-minute debate will be broadcast at 7.30 p.m. on WVIZ PBS, 90.3 IdeaStream Public Media, and as always, at cityclub.org. After the debate, make sure to catch our one-on-one -on -one conversations with the mayoral candidates, Justin Bibb, on October 13th and Kevin Kelly on October 14th. Both of these forums will be live streamed virtually starting at noon. You can learn more about these and other forums at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, panelists. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club. Our forum is now adjourned.